0: These group shows really allow a quick start in developing a community. It felt like a community. It felt like something you could be a part of.
1: In the art world for a long time, there had been bedroom galleries and small spaces popping up and on the fringes of cities and things like that. In the design space, there, there wasn't as much of that.
2: From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. From projects to products, inspirations, and more, join us each episode as I talk to members of New York City's design community about what makes design so outstanding. This season, we're exploring the theme of our future city. We'll discuss how New York is being revitalized, reinvented, and rediscovered through design. What better way to discuss the future of New York City than by welcoming those who bring together its best and -and up-and-coming talent. Today, we have three amazing guests to speak with us about the standout exhibitions they've curated, featuring independent and emerging designers as part of NYC by Design's annual design festival this past November. The exhibitions included experimentations with light, with objects, materials, and so much more, all presented through the eyes of local, independent, creative people. We cannot wait to hear more from our guests, Marcus DePaula, Matt Piscina, and Chris Held, each of whom are New York-based designers with a keen sense of the cutting edge. Thank you all for being here. First, I'd like to introduce Marcus Depala, who curated a week-long pop-up exhibition called Current, Tides of Contemporary Design, as part of the festival. Current took place in Dumbo, Brooklyn, and featured more than a dozen Brooklyn based artists, designers, and studios, some of whom presented one of a kind work with one of a kind materials. Marcus DePala is himself a designer of over 15 years who specializes in light and sculpture, utilizing materials such as resin, neon, stone, and glass to evoke a sense of otherworldliness and human fragility. Marcus, thank you so much for joining us here today to chat about Current and New York City's creative landscape.
0: You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
2: First, I'd love to know more about your practice. What kind of work do you do with design?
0: I've worked with Light for my whole career across theater, film, live performance, and I'm about three years into this particular chapter uh, of my practice. And it really has come about as a result of those prior years of working in more temporary states, creating productions that come up and then come down and creating work that you've spent so much time and effort to put together, but then they kind of end up in a dumpster shortly thereafter. So in this chapter, really creating pieces that I hope to outlast myself out of materials that are millions of years old and really spending the time and effort to create, or at least challenge all of us to think about our own legacies.
2: Could you tell us about the story, the origin story of how Current came together?
0: My wife and I moved to Dumbo after leaving New York for about a year during the peak of the pandemic. And we came back, like all of us wanting to rebuild that sense of community that we lost, that disconnect that we had. And we ended up finding studio space and an apartment in Dumbo with the help of a longtime Dumbo artist, Dale Kaplan, and she'd been pushing for artists to, to come back uh, to Dumbo historically for decades was an artist's hub, but probably in the last couple years of redevelopment also became a, a tech hub too. And many of those businesses left during the pandemic. And so there was an opportunity for artists to come back in and reclaim this space.
2: Tell us about the, the name Current. What made you decide to choose that specific name?
0: So it uh, has a couple different meanings. It both reflects the moment in time of a lot of these works that were created during the pandemic out of it, but also uh, celebrating Brooklyn as being along the waterfront and for decades has been where the work that is consumed in Manhattan is often produced in Brooklyn and along the the shoreline there where historically it had been industrial factories and, and production spaces, and I think, and it still continues today across the Navy Yard, up into Williamsburg, down into Red Hook. And we ended up having artists that represented were represented all across those neighborhoods. So it felt fitting to draw this picture of, of the work being carried down the river and into, into our space in Dumbo.
2: Can you walk us through the show a bit and and give us a sense of some of the visual themes that were at play, the types of materials that you were using, the colors you chose, and and the concepts that the viewer encountered experiencing the show?
0: Sure, absolutely. I think a key theme that that sort of came out um, almost as a surprise, a lot of the pieces that we were able to have were, were commissions that were actually ready to be delivered to a lot of clients. And so it worked to have all this art that was ready and to just bring into the show for that moment. But I'd say the key visual theme was really unexpected materiality. So we had porcelain sconces with very flaky glazes from Natalia Landowska. We had enameled cardboard panels from chapter and verse. We had Edison light bulb glass as crystals in the form of a chandelier from Jen Lewin. We had hand-carved, layered, bleached cherry in the form of batette from Aaron Scott. And so it, it was really like materials presented in unexpected ways. The colors themselves were also neutrals, generally blacks and whites, And so there ended up being this color theme of neutrality throughout the space.
2: As I was preparing my research for today's interview, I read that you craft light sculptures that evoke sci-fi symbolism and imagine relics from another world. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what that means and how you go about doing that. Sure. The inspiration...
0: Really has come from, I'd say, core. My, my father is, is a NASA engineer. And so I grew up around really feeling like space as part of my reality. He'd bring home photos of some of the missions that uh, he was part of. And as a young kid, I would tape them side by side all along my walls. And so grew up very connected to the cosmos. And then also as part of that, uh, really was into sci-fi cinema. And, and I feel like there's been this renewed interest in that visual aesthetic, in particular with digital artists. And I've been quite taken by that and been inspired to try to create some of my own imagination into these real pieces. And it's interesting because I'm using materials that, classic materials that have for centuries been used in lighting such as alabaster. Alabaster traditionally from Italy has been carved into sconces and chandeliers, even when they were using flame as the light source. And so I'm putting a interesting spin on it by using a more modern lighting such as LED and neon that create this, this fun contrast in uh, perceived time from origins.
2: You've said that as celestial-inspired relics, your work seeks to call attention to civilizational fragility and have us question what will be left of us. What are some of your thoughts on civilizational fragility at the moment? Are you thinking about climate change? Are you thinking about the way in which we tend to have conflict with each other? Talk a little bit about what you mean by that. And, and what you envision what could be left of us.
0: I, I think it's all of it. I think the pandemic, especially in those first couple weeks where there was so much ambiguity, really had us question what, where we were gonna be tomorrow. And at that moment in time, my, my wife and I, we ended up deciding to road trip across the United States. And we lived uh, in a remote section of Southern Utah for a few months and we were surrounded by these stones and formations that had been you know around for quite some time and you really have this sense that humans it's very real that humans have really only participated on earth for for a very small segment. And these materials have been here and will continue to be here after us, if that so happens to be the case. And so wondering, okay, like what are we doing with our time here? How How are we participating in these materials? And I ended up making a couple sculptures out of the volcanic rock that was in the, the landscape there and did some research and found that those stones had been brought down during the ice age and the glacial flow and, and actually date back 15 to 20 million years. And so when I'm working with materials to create light pieces and things that will be in our home, it's just humbling to know that what we've brought in is has been around for so long and likely will continue to be around after. And just that sense of Relative place, I think, is something that's just really nice to have around us.
2: Marcus, there is nothing older, really, in the universe than light. And in many ways, that's how we measure the age of the universe. What is it about light that intrigues you so much to center your practice around it?
0: I'd say to all of us, light is inherent as a a place for gathering, as a place For comfort and safety, you talk about or think about the first forms of light for human interaction, created light being campfire, right? And humans have always gathered around a campfire for sustenance, for safety, for uh, communal conversation. And so I'd like to create my pieces to reflect those needs, biological needs that we have. And so a lot of my pieces, most of my pieces actually function in the round. And so they could be placed in the center of a room on a table and in a way that draws uh, people together around them. And I feel like a lot of the pieces in the show had uh, similar, similar themes. The chandeliers that we had and some of the other works were I'd say that they're sculptural primarily, and I'd say that was another theme of the show, was really lighting a sculpture and in very organic forms. So, for example, we had a manta, sort of manta ray-like LED mesh from Jason Krugman, the wall and chandelier configurations of graphic lines from James Dieter, and we really had no traditional lamp with shade fixtures. Everything felt like an artistic expression, and we ended up creating little vignettes, little moments that the light centered around with the other pieces. And so there was definitely like this interaction between the light and the tables that they were above, the seating arrangements. And we lucked out that Natalia Landowska, who was, she created the ceramic sconces, but she was also an incredible and talented interior designer. And she paired the works together in a way that really felt like there was a dialogue. And I think a really a, a great benefit of being part of an exhibition like this is that the works can speak to each other as opposed to having one's own work in a solo booth at a show. There doesn't need to be any sort of imagination how this might be in a communal space. And I think Natalia did a phenomenal job and using to sort of create these centers of community in all the little vignettes we had.
2: The exhibition was just outstanding and no pun intended, or maybe a little bit of a pun intended, really illuminating. Marcus DiPaola, thank you so much for joining me here today on the mic. And if you could stick around a little bit, I'd love to have you rejoin our conversation after I chat with Matt Piscina and Chris Held. Thank you. Next, I'm happy to introduce Matt Piscina, director of special projects for creative studio Pink Essay, which curated a days-long exhibition as part of its ongoing series titled Physical Education and was featured as part of the NYC by Design Festival. Matt is a self-taught interdisciplinary artist, designer, and creative director. He is also the founder of Guapo, a design studio blurring the lines between streetwear, furniture, and mixed media art. Matt, thank you so much for being here.
3: Uh, Thank you for having me as well.
2: Matt, first, we'd love to know more about how you discovered your passion for design and how you became such a master being self-taught.
3: I went to art school my freshman year of art school at School of the Art Institute of Chicago, completely lost knowing I definitely wanted to do something creative. I felt like there was nothing else for me out there in the world. But school was so expensive and I was pretty overwhelmed And had to drop out. Do it was right around the like 2007, 2008 financial crisis. We weren't getting loans, and that was a very like big panic button for me. I was like, "What am I gonna do? This was all I had going for me. I needed to get a job. Moved back home. Needed to get a job. Went to the mall, and was like, "What's the coolest job I can do here? Just searching for something. And I ended up getting a job at Anthropology as a window display designer. Just at my local mall, I was 19, foundation year of art school, and I got a job where I was given a budget, I was given a theme, and I was asked to like go and buy materials, design a window, present it to my manager and to corporate. It got approved, it would get approved, and then I'd install. And I think that's just a very foundational way of how any sort of design work. I'm a set designer and a prop stylist. It's essentially the same method of work that, that I do. And that sort of illuminated, I think, design for me as a way to, to be creative forever and to do it professionally. I sort of began to see how that was something that could be applied to so many different industries and so many different ways of making and, and creating. I carried that with me forever, all the way to New York City. So two years later, I moved to New York when I was 21 and started it all over again. It was like, how can I, through creativity, through what I learned in designing and making, make my dreams come true? And uh, that's, that, would I would say, was the beginning. And not long after, I found myself at ABC Carpet and Home, where I worked as a visual merchandiser for five years, doing window displays and in-store. I always feel like my job there was to be an interior designer and a project manager all at the same time. We would create displays, have them built in-house, in- have them installed constantly, uh, doing events and... Working with contemporary furniture and antiques and vintage and creating displays and, and the out, the layout of the store. I got to understand first understand like the New York industry and started going to ICFF and started going to New York now. And this was 2010 to 2015. And those were just like foundational years and getting this full intro into the landscape of design and the industry. And since then, I've just been obsessed and been trying to figure out how I was going to make my way into that world even deeper.
2: And it's so interesting how many pathways into that world you are now on. You have such an interesting Diverse set of skills and, and interests. Can you talk a little bit about Pink Essay and its physical education series? How did they come to be?
3: Pink Essay was founded in 2019 by David Erdley. For him, it it began as just like a Instagram account where he began to document things that inspired him and regram work that meant a lot to him. And quickly, it, as it gained a following, he realized this could be something a lot bigger. I think in 2020, he brought on Anna and then myself at the top of 2021, where we all started to figure out a way to make it more of a creative studio and and start to build a community in real life. And uh this past summer, I have a studio in... Lower East Side, we began to create events and programming, inviting that online community that had been built to come and see projects we were working on in real life, inviting them to show their own, doing collaborative merch drops, collaborative design projects, and just really one step at a time, just building a new community, one that we felt would be more inclusive and more diverse than what we've experienced in the past. And really trying to, for all of us as like outsider, insider designers, just really trying to create a space that felt safe and and inclusive and lowering the barriers of entry so that people felt comfortable and we could, you know, really do something
2: new. How did you come up with the idea for the physical education series?
3: Physical education came about by just thinking about the relationship between like our bodies and objects, and how somewhere in between that is is maybe what we were more interested in. It was this sort of the human interaction between objects. So I feel like at Pink Essay we're much more interested in a new design community than we are with the objects themselves. More more interested in the ideas than than what they are physically, and while also wanting to then create a series that would also educate. So for anyone coming in from different backgrounds and from different places in their careers in design, that there would also be an element of education, you know, that those at, at a higher place could help those that are starting their journey. Physical education, also with the PE and the Pink SA, It just felt like a fun title to our series. It's taken the form of a few different types of collaborations. And for NYCX Design, we decided to do a design show. And that came about mostly because just different artists in in our community were asking us to do it. And it just felt like the right time.
2: One of the sub-themes of your exhibition was the idea of Parallax. What is Parallax and what does it mean to you?
3: The idea of our sub-theme Parallax 101 was conceived by John Viewig of The High Key, who had a really amazing piece in our show as well. He reached out to us offering a lot of help and a lot of willingness to put the show together. He helped me curate the show. He helped me put it together and apply to be a part of NYCX design. So shout out John Viewig and his work in putting together this show for Pink SA. Parallax is the study of perceptual effects created by relationships between furniture and people. I guess one of the best ways to explain it is like an object appears differently depending on like where the viewer is. It's a very foundational element of design. It, if any form of design, and we also thought it acted as a great metaphor that sort of any designer could riff on, whether they were tied to tied to it more literally or find a way metaphorically, point of view. We made that very clear to all the designers that we asked to be in our show, made personal phone calls. It was just like, in no way do we want this theme to make you feel like you can't be a part of the show if your work doesn't speak to it. We can find a way together to to think about how it makes sense. And I think that was a big part of what we're interested in. There were obviously plenty of designers that were just like, I got it. I know exactly how this makes sense for my work. I relate to this. And there may have been a couple that were like, I'm I'm not so sure if my work speaks to this. And we're like, we want you, we love you, we love your work. And that's what this is about. And, And the theme is important so that we have a starting point for discussion, but I also feel like themes can often keep people out of design as well. So we wanted to make sure that we had something open-ended enough to just include as many artists as possible.
2: It really is a spectacular exhibition. Matt, thank you so much for joining me and, and talking to me about your work and its meaning. If you could also stick around for a bit, I'd love to have you rejoin our conversation after I talk with Chris Held. And last but not least, I would love to welcome Chris Held to the podcast who is both the co-creator and organizer of a phenomenal annual exhibition called Jonald Dud as part of the NYC by Design Festival for the past half decade. Jonald Dud has featured more than 200 artists since its inception and describes itself as a platform that bucks the conventional, empowering artists and advocates of the alternative. Chris also previously co-owned and operated Von Tundra. A design and art collaborative specializing in the design of one off and limited edition furniture, commercial spaces, and conceptual exhibitions, and now co produces Heather Metal Parking Lot, an annual heavy metal themed party supported by the Wasaic Project Artist Residency. Chris, thank you so much for being here.
1: All right, thanks for having me.
2: Chris, I'd love to hear first a little bit more about your practice. What are you working on lately?
1: So I own a studio in, in Bushwick uh, called Nice Condo, which is a uh, furniture design and graphic design independent studio. I work on projects primarily for private clients, making one-off furniture, built-ins. I do some graphic design work for, and, and a little interior design work for some commercial clients as well. I've
2: been working like
1: that since about 2019.
2: Tell us about the origin story of the John Aldud name exhibit and extravaganza that it now is.
1: So John Aldud's been happening since I think uh, the first show is in 2015. The, the origin story for the name is that uh, myself and uh, the collaborators at the time Lydia Cameron and Ben Garthus were uh, we're sitting around over beers and uh, discussing, like, all as all great ideas come into the world. The idea of doing a show, we saw what we believe to be a hole in the market during Design Week. And I initially wanted to call the show Off Brand so that that should provide some context for its anti-conventionalist standing in uh, 2015. I had previously been living in Portland, Oregon, and had visited New York City Design Week a few times And was pretty excited by some of the shows I was seeing, some of the early sight unseen offsite shows, the American Design Club show and uh, a lot of other smaller things. But I didn't really feel like I think I was surprised by how commercial the entire event was overall. And maybe I was a little idealistic having looked at a lot of the stuff happening in Milan and some of the earlier design Basel exhibitions in Miami even. And some friends and I felt that it was not totally representative of some of the stuff that we were seeing out in the world. My partner, uh, creative partner Lydia Cameron and I, along with uh, another friend and artist Ben Garthus had gotten together to talk about the idea of putting on a show and each chipping in a little bit of money to rent a, a space in the Little East side and calling on a lot of friends to commit some work to the show and, and we'd scrape this thing together and uh, it was received uh, surprisingly well and you know added a little bit of uh, wood to the fire in terms of how we felt, I guess, felt like the idea had some legs. And, and so we just, uh, we kept doing it. And now we've, we're about five or six years in.
2: Why the name Jonald Dud?
1: I came to those friends and wanted to call the, uh, the show Off Brand. Taking a real iconoclastic stance <laughs> against what I was seeing in my effort to describe what I was seeing as the show and not as the show. You know, it was just a misspeak, a spoonerism, I guess it's called. And I was trying to say Donald Judd and ended up saying Johnald Dudd, And we all stopped in our tracks and thought that was a pretty good, pretty good name to lean on. And and now I can barely say Donald Judd's name properly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> in, in doing some of my research in preparation for today's show, I saw that, One of your mission statements on your site is the statement punks not dead and punks is spelled P-U-N-X. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that ethos and how it inserts itself or not in the ethos of the exhibition.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. So. I have a, a background and a lot of interest and always have in subcultures and, and subgenres. So I've spent a fair share of my youth on a skateboard and out at punk shows and house shows and stuff like that. And in, in, in some sense, there's truth to that ethos. And then in another sense, I think adding the X and, and using this as a kind of rallying cry is, it's pretty cheeky, um, a little like a mall punkish. And I think a call for things to not be taken too seriously. I think at the end of the day, We all have to appreciate that we're making weird narrative chairs and goopy vases and just some really fun stuff. We're lucky to be in the position that we are to uh, be able to do this stuff.
2: Can you talk about how you went about visualizing this year's show, some of the colors, materials, concepts and so forth that were at play and how they interrelated with each other to manifest the spirit that you created this year?
1: I think every year is the same and every year is kind of different in a sense. We don't lead with any strong and specific call to action or any sort of a framework in, in terms of a the theme. The show curates itself every year in a way. And I think Lydia and I both go into it with an effort to be objective as curators as impossible as that might seem that sort of includes trying to pull our own aesthetic choices and preferences out of the mix as much as possible taking some chances on some pieces whose work we might not totally understand and uh, that ends up leading to a pretty diverse range of works Uh, a lot of work that is uh, maybe on the fringes of what you could typically see at a design convention and then you get some stuff that maybe in isolation would not even read as a part of that design discussion. Some of the earlier shows we did a lot of outreach to people and my background as a fine artist and in the arts community I I was connected to that scene and we invited people that maybe weren't really design minded or or interested at all and they pull a piece out of someone's larger conceptual installation and show it in the context of someone's industrial design-minded lamp. And then all of a sudden they would have this kind of conversation together. That's the vibe every year. There's a lot of things that are playing off of each other due to proximity.
2: This year's show was located in the Canal Street Market. How did the setting work in conjunction with the show?
1: This was a first for us to be in a context like this. And in previous years, we had pretty much been cruising Craigslist for derelict spaces and storefronts and renting old 99 cent shops and spending two days shoveling trash out and then stalling all the work. So to have a space like this, that was a retail experience shopping space with other vendors was pretty specific. And we talked a lot about how much we should gear the installation towards um, that specific context. And I think in the end, we decided that it was um, best to move forward in, in the way that we typically do, which is we play the physical nature of the space, but not so much the concept of what either the space is or was. The installation itself becomes more of just a, a formal voice in, in the mix. And I think steering away from any kind of hard theme keeps the platform a little bit in the background, because the platform already has this big presence in the space and it's all the work is sitting on this singular item. So it it does have a big impact on the show and we want it to for the reasons that I mentioned prior. But I think to go too thematic with it would have it screaming and competing with the work.
2: Did anything surprise you about the contributions this year in the exhibit?
1: I'm surprised every year because the work is, it gets better and better the work that's submitted every year. And we're looking for the weird stuff. And then we get weird stuff that's even breaking with with the ceilings of our imaginations in a way. Anything specific that's, that stands out. I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of people working in a narrative space and they are beyond just certainly just making weird furniture. They are photographing it in ways and contexts that further a story and create an environment all in their own. So there's a lot of I think world building happening, that is uh, super rich. And I'm not sure where that comes from. That's always certainly been a part of art making. And I think that it coming into the design space, um, that feels fresher, and it's nice to have that represented in, in the mix.
2: Chris, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I'd like to ask Matt Piscina and Marcus De Paula to come back and rejoin us, so we could have a, a joint discussion. My first question is, what do you think emerging and independent designers are bringing to the table now that is unique from more established creative people?,
0: I'll, I'll speak uh, a little bit from myself and and from some of the other stuff that we see out there that I think as an emerging artist or designer, it's it's the art first and foremost, and that's the inspiration, and that's 100% what you're excited about and why you're there. And so I think the work ends up being much more sculptural, one-off, unique. And for myself, I... I it didn't really have like yet the concept of economics, really. You're not paying attention to how much time you're putting into a piece and you're not really comparing your time to how much the piece could only sell, for example. And so you're making something that would be practically completely unrealistic to get uh, a fair amount for the time that you put into it. But that kind of makes it all the more fun. You're not doing it necessarily for the their paycheck. You're doing it because you have to express Uh, the artistic fire that's in your belly. And so I think we're actually seeing more space in the design world and this greater crossover between fine art and design where there's greater interest in market for functional art and collectible design. And so pieces that don't have a very specific place in in the concept of like production, for example, they really are one-offs and they really are sculpture as much as they are functional or even perhaps conceptually functional, not practically, which is okay, too. And so to me, that's this exciting space that I'm seeing a lot of emerging designers and and artists dabble in. And I think there's a greater excitement around this space in between.
2: Absolutely. I agree. Chris, Matthew, any additional thoughts on what you think emerging and independent designers are are offering that's more unique than the more established creative, or the creative establishment, as we can call it, I guess?
3: I'll, I'll speak to that a bit. For one, I just want to say when Chris was speaking to seeing those original off-site shows and like that 2013, 14, and his show starting in 2015, I, I remember going to those shows as well and feeling very similar. These play spaces that I thought were supposed to be inclusive very quickly felt like unattainable. And I also remember going to John L. Doug's, uh first show. And feeling very similar to the, hearing him speak was super inspiring because his punk background and this kind of DIY community aspect, it felt like that. It felt like a community. It felt like something you could be a part of. And I think that's what independent designers, when they band together, are, are creating. Where I think that what independent designers and independent shows are doing right now is we're creating spaces where when people come they immediately think, like, I can do this. Like, I have some cool work. Like, I could be a part of the show. Like, I can get involved and create.
2: What do you see as the biggest challenges new designers face in getting their work into the spotlight today? And how do you believe that collaborations like yours can help them overcome some of those obstacles, and then ultimately accomplish getting their work into the spotlight.
0: I'd say the the show that I put together was very much a function of this challenge of being incredibly new to the art and design world, having no name for myself, yet wanting to participate in the NYC by Design Festival, and realizing that if I were just to do a a studio visit, who's going to come to my studio if nobody knows who I am? And I'm actually in the bowels of a big building thinking, okay, there's others literally around me a block, couple blocks away around here and rising tide lifts all ships to continue to play off that metaphor. If you band together and have at least a, a few others together, then it makes it more worthwhile for someone to stop by. So very practical in that sense. And then also not having money or really interest to to spend money on a booth in a big cavernous show and so trying to think like what could we do that would be different that could get some attention that actually had a more interesting narrative than what we could offer by ourselves
3: just to speak from my personal experience so even marcus's current show i actually had a a collaboration between me and uh, a buddy of mine bronson of work at hand, we did a pillow stool collaboration that was featured in current show. That was this year was my first time participating in any design shows. I've lived in New York for ten years, I've made so many different things, but really feeling like these spaces that are created are allowing you know outsiders to come in and and make things.
0: Matthew, I'd also like to to piggyback off of what you were sharing and in, in participating in our show and and actually reaching out to Bronson, then connected us to you and there's. These group shows really allow a, a quick start in developing a community and getting to develop some personal relationships with others, which also practically help in increasing our capabilities, maybe helping find some place for collaboration and fabrication, creative inspiration. And so I, I think like it's so quickly bringing in more people into these shows, everyone's network's overlap and it's just such a wonderful opportunity to to build a family and feel more connected in this city that can feel a bit disconnected in particular during the last couple of years totally and the barriers of entry
3: have just often just been way too high i think that one thing i know that we tried to do at our show is cr- create a place for even unfinished ideas and that's something we do on pink essays instagram account as well I know a lot of Instagram accounts have really high barriers of entry, even for uh, photo documentation, for instance, and same thing for shows like it, you have to be able to provide like really high end photos. And obviously that's getting easier as technology gets better every year. But in the past, that has been a huge barrier and continues to be, I, I think, creating places not just for finished designs, but also for for unfinished ideas, for models, for miniature models, for sketches for conversations those are all ways in which new designers can get into these spaces and i think social media is like the number one best way of for any new designer to to start sharing their work for me in this past year i've been just repeatedly sharing a cardboard model for a chair that i've been working on and just making small tweaks throughout that process because the cost of fabrication to create something that like that would be so high for me and i don't necessarily i'm not in a place where i have a buyer to then the spin the 5k to create a one-off chair that might go to a design show but then I am just sitting with this expense because I don't have a buyer. But through social media and through platforms that John Dudd or Current or Pink SA have created, you can begin to share your work online, share your ideas online, do podcasts, do certain things like this, build a community, and get to a place where you can begin to make and sell sell work.
2: One of the things that I like so much about hosting this podcast is that it's simultaneously inspirational and also practical. And so I'd like to ask one last question of the three of you. What advice would you give to a young or new designer trying to navigate a career in design?
1: As as someone who's been on on both sides of the exhibition process, As someone who's applied to shows and curated shows, I, I can definitely say that th- some simple advice is best, which is, it's just be cool, be easy to work with, and um, do what you say you're gonna do, hopefully by the deadline. And also, I know it's like photos in the past, you know, good photos of the work have been a barrier, but if you can't afford good photos, take thoughtful photos make them highly considered and, and put some lowbrow, high flash stuff together that can look really intentional because people like when I'm putting together a show, I want to share people's work. Like I want to pass it forward and I want to give them a platform and exposure. And uh, those are the only barriers to that. And it's a pretty small niche scene.
3: Everyone, everyone is
2: eventually going to know each other. Thank you, Chris. Matthew, Marcus.
3: The personal advice I would give a young designer that I often do, something that's been really inspiring to me is streetwear. And that streetwear obviously came from skateboarding and punk music and hip hop, which are all really deep, like DIY community building cultures that have become pop culture today. I think streetwear is a great example of how one can start a brand, build a community. I think we've seen since in the last five, six years, how streetwear has infiltrated fashion to a point where the entire fashion industry had to bend, bend a knee where, you know, people who started small brands for their niche communities are now heads of houses. And I think even with the, the passing of Virgil had begun to work with IKEA and work with Vitra and began to be that tip of the spear of sort of these ideas Coming into the design world and, and the design industry. I would advise any young designer to, to think in that way. Think in terms of, of punk music, of hip hop, of streetwear and skateboarding culture. Use the resources you have, create with your friends, share your work as much as possible and just do what you can. We saw how large brands were able to go from like a screen printed t-shirt to then, uh, luxury cut and sew later when they had the resources to do. And I think the same logic can be applied to design, whether that's 3D printing, whether that's plywood furniture, whether that's a cheaper means of creating, uh, to, to build your ideas and, and build a following and just fo- follow your own path. Go from there.
2: Thank you for mentioning Virgil Abloh, a great designer. We recently lost. Rest in peace, Virgil Abloh. Marcus, last word with you. A bit of advice for young designers looking to try to break into the scene.
0: My advice is to create your own opportunities, especially if you don't see things, if you don't see exhibits, if you don't see uh, space that you feel you could even participate in. I I think that's how the current show came together. And my other advice is just to ask too, right? So reach out to other designers, invite them to participate and create a group show. Reach out to... Developers. We got our space donated by Two Trees, a local landlord, simply by bringing the show concept and, and a few uh, of us that had committed and saying, hey, this is what it could look like. And you have some open space here. Can we have it for uh, a week or two? And also, I'd say just ask the press, right? Ask the press to come figure out who's writing about work that's similar to yours, who's writing about the festival just at galleries to come visit. And I think like we ended up doing outreach to uh, over 150 press folks, gallerists, other people that are in this space and in the community, all blind emails, but personal ones and saying, hey, we really love what you do and we're new to this and here's a bunch of us together. Please come out to the show and, and, and see the work. It'll be worthwhile. And if you don't see something that fits for you or doesn't feel right, make something that feels right, make your own. And there's fortunately, if you ask the right way and you present it in a way that is exciting, people will say,
2: never underestimate the power of asking. Absolutely. Marcus, thank you so much. I
1: really echo the sentiment of Matt and Marcus regarding taking some initiative to put something together yourself. If you don't see space for yourself in existence, I think that's the best way to to build a community and, and really the fastest way to find some like-minded people and i think that i think that you'll be as surprised as, as i was to find out how many people there actually are that are, are looking for that same thing in that same space and that same opportunity and access and how willing they are to pitch in and be a part of it and i think that's really the greatest thing about taking the cause on yourself and just uh, making it happen for yourself and and for all your peers and I think that's a great thing.
2: Thank you all for joining us today on NYC by Design's The Mic. A special thank you to our guests, Marcus, Paula, Matt Piscina, and Chris Held for inspiring us with their words and their work. Join me next month to talk even more design on The Mic. Follow at NYC by Design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And please subscribe to the newsletter for the latest in New York City design.